Welcome to Changeboard's Future Talent Podcast, our series of exclusive interviews with senior business leaders and thinkers to uncover their perspectives on the changing world of work. I'm Tom Ritchie, Changeboard's multimedia editor. Make sure to leave a review and subscribe. The Future Talent Podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm joined by writer and broadcaster Simon Fanshawe. Winner of the prestigious Perrier Award in 1989, Simon first came to prominence as a comedian before progressing into broadcasting. He's made programmes for both BBC Radio and television, and his writing has appeared in the Sunday Times and The Observer. A fervent member of campaigning and advocacy groups, he was a founding member of the LGBT charity Stonewall. Through his consultancy, Diversity by Design, Simon now works with businesses and organisations on answering strategic business questions through diversity. In this podcast, I ask Simon about his approach to his constantly evolving career, why a diverse workforce is key to answering strategic business questions, and the role technology plays in addressing unconscious bias. Well, hi Simon. Thanks Hello. so much for speaking with us today. Um, I thought we could start with a brief introduction to you and, and your career, your journey from being a Perrier award-winning comedian to an author, broadcaster, and now a, a consultant. Yes, I, I haven't really ever had a job. That's the thing I should start off saying. I've literally never been employed. I mean, I've had contracts and I've done all that kind of thing. But um, And I fell into that by accident. And the days in which I fell into it, it was relatively unusual. But of course, it's not now. That is, you know, one of the main ways in people in which people work. And I find that when I look back over things, I, it, it, I'm a bit like a clock, really. You know when you, you can see that a clock has changed, but you don't necessarily see the hour hand going around. I find that every time I look at my life after about six or seven years, I appear to be something different. So I've gone through that phase. I was a community worker, then I I was a stand-up for 10 years, and then that overlapped with a lot of radio, and then I wrote for the Sunday Times, Culture Section, and other newspapers. I did that for about 15 years. Um, and now all that, in a way, has sort of come together, I suppose. So... And there's a sort of theme that runs through it for me, which is really about advocacy and change, I suppose. And so you touched on it briefly there, that it was kind of almost an unconscious thing that you kind of moved through these different stages of your career. But it's something that we'll probably be touching on at the conference is people are going to have to start looking at their career more as a portfolio, more as a, a constantly evolving thing. So what is your approach to learning new skills or, or a, a new role? One of the dangers, I suppose, is that to start with, you, you, you don't learn consciously. And what I think is more helpful is to be more conscious about what you learn. Mm. So that's one of the things I've learned, if you like, yeah. o- over the time. I think that the key thing, though, is that if you grab opportunities, if you create luck and then make something of it, you sort of have to learn new skills by necessity. That requires you to be open to the idea that things are changing and it requires you to embrace the notion of change. And what's interesting, I think, is when you look at what the shape of work looks like into the future, there will be people who do jobs for quite a long time and that will carry on. They'll just do them in a different kind of way. But then there'll be lots of other people who will move every two years or so. And I think where the real question becomes is not so much whether individuals can learn, because individuals, in a sense, thrust, as I say, into situations mm. 
we then have to pick up new skills and we draw on things that we didn't realize we'd draw on before and we find new skills. But the difficulty is for organizations to learn. So they will spend a lot of time saying things like, well, you know, how do we retain people and stop losing all that knowledge out of the business? Well, if the reality is going to be that people are going to, certainly in their 20s and 30s at least, churn every say three or four years or whatever, then organizations are going to have to find a way of constantly capturing the way in which people are learning about the job that's done. So it's the organization in a way that's got to learn more quickly and be more flexible and more adaptable. So it's going to have to adapt to the shape of work and so on and so forth. So a classic will be maternity and paternity leave and working flexibly. You know, organizations are simply going to have to work and use technology and use their intelligence to construct work in such a way that people are able to give of their best at the same time as either caring for kids or caring for their parents or pursuing other careers or whatever and I know that a long time ago actually somebody I know who used to live around the corner actually um worked at American Express and the best team he had was they were never to be called the A team they were the people to whom um uh, all the most difficult customers are escalated and so he ran this call center so there was them and then there was the others and one of the things he built into the process was he allowed you know they enabled people to take six nine months off go traveling and come back into their job and the reason they did that was that if they didn't do that, they'd lose them forever because that was the sort of job it was. So that was an intelligent way, I think, of learning for the organization about how people are working. So for, a, for an organization, it's about reacting to what people are, how people are learning themselves and creating an environment where they can do that in their own way. I think not just reacting, but I think being proactive and thinking how do we get the best out of people? Mm. So if you, for instance, if you look at the NHS, I mean, there is a bonkers system there where nurses will go into agency work rather than join the NHS bank, despite the fact that if they stay in the NHS, they get a better pension arrangement. Mm. But largely they don't do it because they, the bank doesn't offer them the flexibility that they need. And yet the NHS is an organisation that runs on shifts. Everybody yeah. in the NHS does shifts, basically. And yet somehow it cannot get itself quite to adapt to offer the level of flexibility that it needs. Now, that's mad because it's costing it a fortune and it's not deploying people to the best that they can work. Mm. So, you know, organisations have got to stop having huge preconceptions. If you want to keep a call centre running 24-7, fine. But you can still do that with shift work and flexibility. You just have to be cunning and clever about it. And I'd just like to touch on your work as a, as a consultant on uh, diversity. So what role, um, and I think you briefly touched on it there, but what role does diversity play in answering um, strategic business questions? Well, it's a good way to frame the question because for a long time, there's been a huge amount of money invested in diversity and time and energy and effort and actually sincerity. People have really meant what they've said but the reality is, it hasn't changed much. Mm. It's been a bit of change, but not very much, either in speed or in, or in, or in, or in uh, quantity. So the question has to be asked, what's gone wrong in a sense? Or what are we not doing that we should and could be doing? So that's where we started when we put the business together, was 
from that question, what are we not doing? What could we do better? What could we do crucially differently? What needs to change in order to do this and achieve better results? So the first thing I think is that diversity has to stop being a thing on its own. I once got very bored at a conference and they tweeted, uh, diversity is not a thing you do, it's a way you do things. Mm. It's not a separate thing. It's an approach to talent to achieve certain goals. So the first thing where it contributes is it asks the question of organization, what combination of difference do you need to achieve the goals you've set yourself? So organization X, is it moving into new markets? Is it changing the format and the way in which it works? Is it uh, trying to shift, for instance, I mean, 78 or whatever it is, percent of purchasing decisions are made by women of all sorts, you know, from cars and houses right the way through to, you know, thimbles and pins. If you're trying an organisation that recognises that and is trying to reorient yourself around female decision making in retail, does that require a different combination of people in it, etc., etc., etc.? So, specifically finding out what combination of, of talent you need in your organisation, that's got to be the starting point because that's what all diversity is. Mm. It's unlocking the blocks to certain groups of people, yeah. and we do have certain groups of people. Anybody listening. Just turn to the person if you're near anybody and look them in the eye and say, this is as far as you're going in your career. Try it, because that's what organisations are doing to people. Whole swathes of people are being told, that's it, actually. You stop here. So we've got to unlock that. But once we've unlocked it, then what's the dividend? And that's about combining difference. Mm, that's not a good way of uh, improving office morale, though, is it? Turning well, it's not. <laughs> but, but I know. But, and it's very funny. When I do it in, in sort of conferences and mm. things, and groups, the reaction is always the same. People do one of two things. They always laugh because mm. it's so embarrassing. And the other thing, I did it yesterday and something. And somebody went, no. Like, yeah. like, I'm not saying that to anybody. Exactly. Yeah. And I don't want them to do it. I just want them to feel how terrible it is. Because literally, I mean, again, the marvellous NHS, people are being fantastic on the ward level. They're using their ethnicity and their sexual orientation and, and the fact that they're female or male or whatever. All that, they're using it brilliantly to help patients, you know, improve their health and, and get better care. As you go up the organisation, it just gets more and more white and more and more male. There is absolutely a ceiling around about mm. grade sort of five, six, six, seven, for large numbers of black and Asian people. Mm. It just is. And women. And so that's terrible. It's a waste of talent. Mm. So I'd like to touch on that, uh, the report that you worked on for the NHS, oh, yeah. um, because a lot of the conversation around the NHS at the moment is framed around the benefits of the different people mm. who, are, who are within it. You know, mm. you hear a lot about with the looming deadline of Brexit approaching, we're going to lose vast amounts of nursing and doctors so what is what were your findings in that NHS report? Where Where is the ceiling? You mentioned the grade six or seven. Could yeah. you explain that for our okay. audience? So what you, as I say, what you find in the NHS is that people understand really well and, and put this into operation really well, that um, the research, all the research and practice that tells you that if you can represent the population that you're providing a health service to in the providers of the service. You get better penetration of the service to the patients and the patients of the service. So we know that, and that works. So, for instance, if you put gay men in a sexual health clinic and you tell other gay men, more of us go, we have more honest conversations, more testing happens, 
better health outcomes. So we know that that's true, and that's and people are doing that brilliantly. And that's you know they're using languages and etc. 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 So all that's working really well. What's not happening is as people rise up, the ceiling comes at senior management. So the service is not being run and designed, and hospitals and trusts are not being run by a diverse group of people. Now they're very brilliant, many of these people, but the question in the report says. Okay, there are two ways of thinking about diversity, both of which are important. One are the deficits, which are the ceilings, the blocks to people's career, what's happening to them. And the second is, once you unlock those, how do you get this dividend? So the question of the report says, look, we get what's happening at, at, the, at the ward level, at the coal phase, but let's now concentrate on what dividends would the NHS get by having a much more diverse management and board? What would happen if it did that? And how would that improve patient health, staff well-being and innovation in design and delivery of service. So that's the challenge. And of course, if you think about the way in which you design services, they're delivered, as I say, at ward level or clinic level by people. But actually, if you think of the design of services, it needs the input, the real different insights at a senior level when you're designing, when you're allocating resources and so on and so forth, because you then get a different set of insights mm. into the challenges which the service is designed to meet. So it's challenging people really to do that. And that six or seven uh, is the sort of the senior manager level. That's okay. where the blockage appears. And uh, I just, as you were speaking there, all I could think of was we know that there are benefits to having a diverse workforce. That is something that has been largely proven. But you're more likely to find a CFO or a, or a CEO or a COO called John or David than you are a woman yeah. or someone from the BAME community. So... What needs to be done in the C-suite to address the lack of diversity at the very top? Well, I count them every quarter. I count the people in the top 300 jobs of the FTSE 100, which is the chair, the chief exec and the chief finance officer. And it's still true the last time I counted that there are more men called John, David and Andrew than there are women and black and Asian people. So there's clearly a block there. And the thing about it is that it's not that there's anything wrong with those people. I'm sure they're all individually very brilliant. What's peculiar is that it's statistically just a bit odd that all mm. that one group end up in charge. So what's happening? Clearly, we are not enabling the talent. I mean, you either say, well, women and black and Asian people are just not good enough. This can't do it, you know, which I sort of think is unlikely. So what you then have to say is, well, what what blocks are we putting in their in their in their way to stop them flowering? So what needs to be done is we need to a understand in quite specific ways. It will differ from industry to industry, sector to sector, company to company. The particularity of it is very important because if you you really have to understand the problem if you're really going to create a solution mm. for it. So specifically, what's happening in particular? organizations so for instance uh one law firm uh that, that we came across uh, they had <laughs> they had more partners called david than they did women so 14 percent of their partners were david and 11 percent of the partners were women mm. what was happening so we first of all asked them what makes a great partner and we said nominate three partners who are great so all the men nominated themselves Despite the fact that 11% of the partners are women, only 3% of those nominated as great were women. So, number one, there's a conception of leadership here. Mm. Second question, which is interesting, though, we looked at the people before partnership. And the question was, 
50-50 men and women actually aspiring to be partners. But it turned out that the men were more ambitious than the women. Well, again, there's only two possibilities there. Either women are less ambitious than men or something, where were the ambitious women gone? Sure enough, when you went down, you realised ambitious women were leaving. So the specific question then was not just a kind of bias or a preference at the top. It was a retention strategy mm. and keeping those women and saying, actually, I know you're looking at the top of the moment and thinking I'm not called David, so I'm going. But actually, we're going to make sure that you have the opportunities. So the specifics are very, very important. So your question is what needs to be done? Well, number one, we need to frame what we need in those jobs in terms of a combination of people, not just in single people. What you need at an exec team is a combination of people who bring a different set of insights and abilities and technical abilities to the piece. Number one, so always recruit relatively, not just individually. Secondly, be prepared to find a way of recruiting, we've got one, which enables you to look at the evidence people are actually bringing to what you need, rather than what you're using as your own proxies for your own preferences. Mm. Doesn't matter where they went to university, doesn't matter whether they worked in that sector, there's lots of things which people use as, ex as, as ex uh, uh, evidence of experience, which actually isn't evidence of experience. So we, we, we really interrogate that process and then we famously we call it putting the curtain in because of the famous example of of, of musicians being auditioned for orchestras mm. and if you put the curtain in then actually you get a much diverse bunch of uh, 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 you recruit a much more diverse bunch of musicians because you actually can listen to how they play rather than be thrown by the fact that they're men or women or whatever so you need to have a process that enables you really to focus on what people can offer. You need to encourage them really to bring what they can offer. So, for instance, if women go off and have babies or whatever, and then they come back to organisations, organisations tend to ask them, what have you forgotten? Well, organisations should ask them, what have you learned? Yeah. Because having a baby, I understand... <laughs> is massively life-changing. Yeah. You change who you are. And I've never met a woman who ran an organisation or a department who didn't talk about how she managed a family in terms of how she manages her work. These women bring that to work. So that's something you should value in women. Don't dismiss it. Don't say, what have you forgotten? That's a ludicrous question. Yeah. What have you learned? So you're always looking for what people can bring through who they are. So the answer to your question is people need to change the way in which they recruit to enable them really, if I can extend the metaphor, to hear how applicants play and put together diverse groups of people at the top because that will give them a better set of insights into the challenges that they need to meet. So at the, at the Future Talent Conference, um, you will be talking about bias. Um, there have been a lot of instances where AI and the processing of data have effectively regurgitated entrenched mm. bias within a recruitment process. Um, so, bit of a provocative question. Is it is it all snake oil? Well, it's not all snake oil, but it's in danger of being snake oil. I mm. mean, beware the system that promises you it can debias the results. Because as we know with technology, what technology does depends on what you ask it to do. And it depends on the values or the preferences that you you know, you bake in at the beginning, if you mm. like. So and uh, uh, if you if you bake in it, if you put in a bias at the beginning, the technology will reinforce it, solidify it, and carry it on. And it's mm. far harder actually to unbias the machine. So the question is. If you don't get it right in the first place, then once you automate it using technology, you're not going to get it even more right. What you can do is use technology, obviously, to understand 
things. So big data and AI gives you a phenomenal ability to understand people's preferences. You know that terrible thing that Google apparently knows women are pregnant before they do because of the choices they make and the searches they make and so on and so forth. I mean, this is, you know, on one Slightly level... Slightly worrying. On one level, <laughs> absolutely terrifying, yeah. you know. But on the other hand... If you can get insight into the process, but that will not take out the bias unless you yourself have tackled in a structural way and in a change way the bias that you're putting into in the first place. So my case at the conference will be you've got to get an understanding of how bias is it, it, it operates mm. and how we all operate our preferences once you understand that and you've started to remove that then you can use technology once you've removed as much bias in the first place mm. but the technology itself won't necessarily remove the bias so how do you get people at a personal level to maybe address the biases that they have within them well I mean, well the, the big thing about biases which is so difficult is we've spent so long learning these things and by the way unconscious bias is fantastically helpful in certain situations i mean you know our unthinking learnt response to traffic is precisely what stops us stepping out in front of moving cars mm. terrific unconscious bias about not being killed this is a good thing Right. So unconscious bias is just learnt automatic unthinking reactions. But it's not so good when it comes to assessing people because we think, oh, well, you know, he's got a posh voice. He must be doing this, that and the other. Oh, he's got a working class voice. He must not be able to do this, that and the other. I've said he twice here. And so it goes on. So we can't unlearn the biases. You know, we can't sort of train ourselves out of them. What we have to do is put ourselves into different situations. I'll give you a good example of this. Um, is civil partnerships. Hmm. And it's not just I've got one, but it's, it's a useful example of social change. So when we thought up civil partnerships, the reason we did it was we wanted to get all the rights and responsibilities for lesbians and gays, but we knew that if we called it marriage, the church thinks it owns marriage, so they'd block it in the House of Lords. So we came up with a civil partnership idea. That was a good idea. But I said at the time, everybody would call them weddings, you know. Everybody would say, oh, I'm going to so-and-so's wedding the other day. And they did, and they do. And it's great. Now, I've got a friend called, uh, uh, called Frank. And Frank grew up Catholic. And uh, he was gloriously gay when he was drunk and gloriously guilty in the morning when he was sober. And his mum, you know, uh, Wendy, uh, on his shoulder, uh, you know, very difficult. Anyway, eventually meets Michael. Michael managed to get under the tripwire. We don't know how. Michael and Frank get married, uh, decide to get married. So how to tell mum? So various things, put photographs of them all over the house, ask around, do all that business. Anyway, eventually they do have the ceremony. There she is in the front row. The key thing about the question is, it's no longer does she like gays. That's not the question any longer. The question is, is Frank happy? Mm. In other words, we've created a set of norms which enable us to change our behaviour. And that gives us something we can all engage in. So the way we change our behaviour is by engaging ourselves in different situations. If you're white and you don't know any black people, your sense of what racism is about will be fundamentally different. I mean, Liam Neeson, a while back, made this extraordinary confession. But he didn't seem to understand that in saying what he said, he racialized the situation in a way that he wouldn't have dreamt of saying. I don't know whether you recall the mm. incident, but he said, my friend was raped. She said the, the rapist was black. So I wanted to go out and kill a black person. 
if she'd said they were white, would he really have said, I want to go out and kill a white person? I doubt it. I doubt it. So in other words, he didn't understand some for some reason that when in making that rather curiously extraordinary confession, which on one level could have been very powerful, what he did was illustrate the extent to which, but he didn't understand what he was illustrating when he was illustrating it. Yeah. He couldn't see that from a black person's point of view. Now, white people can't see that from a black person's point of view. But what you have to do to change your own biases is to start putting yourself next door to people who experience them. I don't think you can walk in other people's shoes. I just don't think you can. But I think you can walk alongside them. So you're white, I'm white. We'll never know what it's like to be mm. a black person, look in the rearview mirror and see the flashing blue light here yeah. and red light in America. We'll never know what that feels like. But what we can do is listen when black people tell us what it feels like. And what we can also do is say, do you know what? I want to be treated by the police fairly as well. So you and I, you black person, me white person, we can join together in demanding of the police that they treat citizens decently. Mm. So that's what we do. We have to put ourselves in different situations the whole time. When men and women are in offices together, listen. if you're a man, listen to the women. Listen to what they think is a compliment. And if it's not about their clothes, don't talk about their clothes. Listen to what women want to have said to them and not what they don't want to have said to them. That's the th it's always a question of listening, I think, and then making a judgment. You don't want to abandon judgment, but, but listen and evaluate based on your listening. Mm. Don't just charge in there with your own way of seeing the world. So it's, it's based on being empathetic in a way. Yeah. Empathy and solidarity is, yeah. are important. I mean, I'm married to somebody's black and I find one of the things that's most peculiar is that it seemed to almost take the lid off the pressure cooker and I find myself all those socialized thoughts that I've had in my mind suddenly seem to have, have erupted it's really peculiar so I see a black guy in a really smart car and I think I wonder who he is I see a white guy in a really smart car I think oh smart car mm. you know and all that stuff is floating around in my brain so don't punish yourself about it just think about it and work it through you know yeah and once once you think about it and work it through, how can you then bake that into your processes as an organisation? Simply stated, it's about seeing difference, valuing it, and then combining it joyfully. Mm. In other words, always recruit because of people's difference. Always bring into the group the difference that you think you need to achieve what you're trying to do. So don't ever, when next time you go to a party, next time you sit down in the office, don't talk to people about what you have in common. It's really boring. Talk about what you don't have in common. Talk about what you don't know about each other. Because the thing about human beings is, the only thing that makes us all the same is that we're all different. You'll never understand another human being. So looking for the difference and trying to understand that is actually the only journey that's worth going on. So constantly, and doing it in such a way that you realise you'll never get to the end of that journey. Yeah. So how you bake it into organisations is into your appraisal process your recruitment process your promotion process is you're always looking for the difference that people can bring through who they are because everybody brings something different and formalize that in the process tell your staff that's what you value in them mm. throughout the course of the conversation the one thing that I, I carry on thinking about is that especially in reference to the earlier discussion we had about technology is that the most important thing is to just recognize the humanity of the people who are, you're working with appreciate their differences and look at people for what they are and what you are and interact with them accordingly often and we touched on it earlier with the question about you know technology being a snake oil is 
in light of recent technological changes, it's seen as a magic bullet. Yeah. So how do people make sure that they're putting the people that work for them first and not sacrifice them uh, and their role to the advent of new technologies? Well, I think... Uh, uh, what you have to do is if you're going to use technologies, you have to use technology to understand people as individuals as much as averages are the enemy of understanding. No one is average. So when you understand your staff, one of the things that technology often does is give you an overall picture. So it kind of collectivizes everything into a big single average. So you find people say, oh, it's marvelous. We've got 70% staff satisfaction rate. Well, I'm not entirely sure what that tells you, apart from the fact that 30% of your staff aren't satisfied. That might be worrying. Mm. But people, well, what does that tell you? Well, one person might have given it a 1 out of 10, and one person might have given exactly. it a 10 out of 10. So, so. technology has to be used to, to, to create personalised understanding. I think that's one thing. It's also got to be friendly. So people have got to feel that when you're giving them technology to use, it's actually something that that is is valuing them. So you've got to build that humanity somehow into the technology. There's an interesting company that I came across recently. They've got this thing called We Thrive. And what that does is it asks staff to make an an assessment on 16 points about how they feel about working in teams and whether they feel they know what the team's doing, whether the team knows what it's doing, whether they've got enough space to think and all this kind of stuff. And what's interesting is the way it feeds back results because it feeds back an average to the manager of the team, but then it disaggregates that average to each individual person and it gives that individual score back to the person. So the manager and the person can then have a conversation about what they feel strong about and what they feel unstrong about or unconfident about. And that's a much, so that's a really good use of technology because it's getting down to a personal understanding. Simon, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. Uh, it's been a re- yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Good. See you at the conference. See you there. Changeboard's sixth Future Talent Conference will be taking place on the 21st of March in London at the Royal Geographical Society. Join 750 of your peers for a stimulating day of thought leadership on the theme of humanity and technology. Visit our conference website, ftconf2019, that's ftconf2019.com to get your ticket now. We look forward to bringing you another Future Talent podcast very soon. Mm-hmm.